Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matthew Dickerson. Tech, 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 tech talk. Tech, 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 tech talk. Sit back and relax. It's time to talk technology. Hello, goal scorers. Welcome to the penalty spot. We've set you up right on the dot today and substituted the goalie for one of those inflatable punching bag clown dolls. Everyone's going to score today here on Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. And here to ensure that you find the back of the net with whistle in hand, it's our tech talk and coach, the one and only Matt Dickerson. Well, I've got a grin on my face, so I hope listeners have as well. Always enjoy your intros. <laughs> so I've actually got two grins on my face, one from your intro and the other from a conversation I had during the week. Well, I actually wasn't in the conversation. I was on the sideline of the conversation, so I wasn't on the penalty spectator. spot. Spectator? Yeah, I was a spectator. Didn't muscle your way in. I didn't at all. But what I loved about it was it was someone who had recently bought an EV. And this is someone who had traditionally uh, been like buying, yeah. <laughs> been buying or driving large four-wheel drive petrol guzzling type vehicles, and finally the light bulb went on and said, "I don't really need that to run around in the small commute that I do each day. I might consider an EV." And he thought about it for a while, went through a decision-making process. Anyway, finally got it. Happy days. But he was sitting there, and there was a few people around, and someone just ask something about EVs and he said, oh, I've got one now. So what's it like? And I sat back and I heard the excitement, <laughs> the enthusiasm. I heard the next 10 minutes of the stories about how wonderful an EV was. And I was actually thinking of a reformed smoker. No better person yeah. to tell you to not to smoke yeah. than a person who used to smoke and has now given it up. And that's what this felt like. This felt like someone who had discovered the EV world, which is fantastic, but just the enthusiasm, just the excitement. And I'm sitting there going, I don't need to say a word. This guy is all over it. This guy knows all the details. It didn't take him long to get up to speed with everything. Talked about a trip he had to do recently. Didn't expect to do the trip. So he jumped in the car and drove and hadn't charged before he left. So just plugged into a PowerPoint somewhere else and all these little stories. And people sitting there around glued to the information, especially when he talked about one trip that he did that the whole trip cost him nothing and everyone's going, what, yeah. how could you do that for nothing? Oh, I plugged into an NRMA <laughs> charger there. And so I just, I love the enthusiasm of people when they finally go well, from, I'm never driving one of those things to, and I don't think this guy had ever said that, but the sort of attitude of never driving those, I'll never take off to suddenly you get one going, why hasn't everyone got one? Yeah, the, the reformation. And uh, the idea is slowly catching on, isn't it? Oh, it is. And I think, I think it is building. It is we joke about that snowball that you push up here and then once you get to the top of the hill, stand back because it's gathering so much momentum. Yeah, yeah. But I did have that conversation with someone a couple of years ago who had actually bought an EV and they actually said to me, well, isn't everyone driving one? And I said, well, you only just got yours. Yeah, I know, but but now I realise. It's like, yeah. how do you get everyone else to realise that as well? And I know you do the same as myself. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, look, I've taken a couple of people recently for a test drive and, um, yeah, they just – I get the giggles. Um, it's, it's just – um, a, a different way of, of seeing how cars drive. Um, it, it just it looks totally different on the inside. Um, and it's just, there's there's a, a novelty to start off with, but then you start to do the maths in your head and you think, well, it just makes sense. Yeah, that's right. And the novelty, you're right, but when you get people behind the wheel, I think that's the time they go, oh, yeah. maybe I should look at one of these. I can actually feel myself. I can see myself driving one of these. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. I'm going to be excited well, about Well, that's how that. I got converted. So <laughs> yeah, it happens to the best of us. Indeed. <laughs> okay. Well, our first story goes out to those who are frustrated by the modern mode of accessing TV. How many streaming services are you currently subscribing to? I was, at one time, a diehard free-to-airer until I realised that without Netflix, there was no Game of Thrones. So I bit the bullet 
swept my principles under the rug and shelled out for another subscription. Sorry, my first subscription. And it seemed like the doors were flung open to an endless abundance of movies and TVs that I never even knew existed. But then I found out that The Mandalorian was only on Disney+. Plus. Well, that was a problem. So I got another subscription. But neither of those providers had the AFL on them, so we ended up getting KO. The seal was well and truly busted and things were at risk of getting totally out of control. Ted Lasso was on Apple TV. Matt, is this the future of home entertainment? <laughs> Am I getting going to need to get a subscription for absolutely everything to keep my FOMO at bay? Well, the thing is that sometimes there'll be just one show. Yes. As I say, a Ted Lasso, I've got to get that one. There might be one show. I've actually subscribed to Disney Plus at the moment because mm. I love Only Murders in the Building. But that's the only thing I watch on Disney Plus. Mm. So I've got one whole subscription just for one show that comes out once a week. Well, you can catch up on The Mandalorian. Well. <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> <laughs> but what you've described there is exactly the problem that people are having at yeah. the moment. I. I like the new term you just created, a free-to-error. That's, that's <laughs> and you tell me I'm going to use that again soon. But what the, the describing your problem there, it's a bit of overwhelming, and that's exactly... Well, we both grew up as well with two channels, I assume, two channels to start off with. Yeah, ABC. Yeah, the ABC and then the commercial channel. Yeah, the and commercial channel was called CBN8CWN6. Uh, what a crazy name for a channel. was NEN9 up in the Northern Tablelands. But, um, yeah, uh, uh, but then um, yeah, it slowly grew and we got two or three channels and it was like, uh, sorry, well, two or three more channels and all of a sudden we had this wealth of choice. Yeah. It was it was crazy. Yeah. Um, so and that would have been back around 1990, which is when we had TV aggregation. And mm. suddenly you did get three channels, 7, 9 and 10, mm. were distributed out to regional areas. So yeah. TV aggregation was a big step forward. Well, that was only available to people who were in the cities, wasn't it? Um, prior to that, I'm sure. Exactly yeah. right, yeah. You'd yeah. go to Sydney. One of the, my treats when I used to go to Sydney yes. was to watch Hey, Hey, It's Day. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you, Daryl yeah. Summers. <laughs> yeah. So that whole film of being, uh, feel, feeling of being overwhelmed is absolutely understandable because, again, you go from one or two channels, if you count the ABC, mm -hmm. to a couple of channels to now, what? You've got to go and do all that? Yeah. <laughs> and two-thirds, the recent survey said two-thirds of Aussies feel exactly the same way. They're just overwhelmed by all of these streaming options. They all cost money on a monthly basis. Exactly right. And sometimes you subscribe to one and then you've watched the show that you want to watch and that's finished now and so you go, well, maybe I'll get rid of that. So 42% of Aussies have unsubscribed from at least one service in the last mm. year. So it's not as if they subscribe to the service because they want the service. Mm. It's because they want a show on that, which makes sense. Yeah. Once they're done with that, then unsubscribe. But the crucial thing, and this is the thing that I've talked about before, we need, absolutely need an aggregation service. 55% mm. of Aussies said that they would pay for a single platform that covered all services. Mind you, in that survey, it didn't say how much that might cost. You could do all that now. You can have something that covered all services now. And I did the calculations. If you subscribe to every mainstream streaming service, this isn't every little tiny niche that's just some little obscure <laughs> thing. You're paying over $400 a month for all those streaming services. Yeah. And no one logically would do that. You would come in and out as you needed those shows. But it's just the, it's the case of, oh, that's only 16 bucks a month. So that's right. Yeah, that's not that much. We can afford that. Yeah, you know? exactly right. So we need an aggregator. There's no doubt about that. I can imagine the technical side of an aggregator would be reasonably not easy, but doable, feasible. But the legal agreements, mm. and here's the problem. 
if you look at a Spotify, someone that streams music, you can have a Spotify, you pay a monthly fee for that, and then you can see how many songs are played by artist James Eddy and then will pay James based on the pro rata of all those songs that are played. So mm. there's a, a basic formula, which is what someone like Spotify uses. They might probably change that in the upcoming future, but but that's roughly how it works. But if you said to Disney Plus and Netflix and everyone else, Apple TV and all the rest of it, if you said to everyone, we're going to have an aggregator and we'll pay all of you different subscribing services based on how much it's watched, how much it's used, then some of those services would say, well, we're not part of that because we've got subscribers now that don't watch anything, (laughs) but they're still paying their monthly fee. So getting that legal agreement in place, or you might say an aggregator, well, you're getting paid now directly by subscribers, $8 a month. We'll pay you $5 a month to be part of our subscription, and then we'll have an overall subscription that ends up being cheaper than all the individual ones. But gee, that legal discussion would be interesting because everyone (laughs) is the most important one and I guarantee that whoever does an aggregation service there'll still be Apple TV who sits off to the side (laughs) (laughs) just knowing the way Apple are I just can't see them being part of it but there is some hope because Foxtel so majority owned by News Corp they've got a few different brands so KO for example is one Mm -hmm. of their brands they've got a new brand Project Magneto Project Magneto is an aggregation service. So at this stage, they're in serious talks with Disney and Netflix. They're trying to work on those two as the most common ones first. But the idea is that they're going to create a, or some form of aggregation service where the main ones will be a part of this. Now, what they're saying is that they're in the perfect spot to do it because Foxtel has still got four and a half million subscribers. So it's a fairly good Start, place to start with yeah. when you consider the Australian population. When you think about it as well, I think Foxtel is seeing the writing on the wall going, how much longer are we going to be relevant for? Mm. Because depending on the different services you might have in Foxtel, you might be paying over $100 a month for Foxtel. And you're getting that because you might want to watch the AFL or you might want to watch something. But then they've got yeah. KO, which is competing against itself because they realise they had to have some other form of a service. So it's a bit tricky in terms of Foxtel, how do we not butcher our own market, but we need to stay relevant to keep the competitors at bay? And Magneto is their solution. It'll actually be a physical device, so you'll have another device that you'll buy, you'll plug that in, and then presumably they'll start off with a few and they'll want to keep adding to that. The real question I have is this. People say, I'm willing to pay for a single platform to cover all services, so that sounds fantastic. But then you pay, pick a number, let's say it's $100 to cover all your services. You Mm. get that, and then you watch it, you go, well, I'm really only watching Netflix and KO. So don't really want that other one or that other one or that other one. So so, can you give me a flexible option where I don't have all services, I just have the ones that I want to use out of that, so it's a bit cheaper for me. And then that aggregation service says, well, our whole business model is based on giving all of those services and paying all of those different providers. So if you only want Netflix and KO, maybe just go and subscribe to Netflix and KO because that would be cheaper for you. So I I don't know how it will work because logically having everything would make sense, but then the fee would have to be too high to be able to pay all of those different services. Oh, for simpler times, Matt. (laughs) Simpler times. I remember a time when it was simpler. You just turned on the telly and whatever was on was on. Well, that's right. And if you like the show, MacGyver. I love MacGyver. I had to make sure 7.30 on a Wednesday night, I was in front of the TV and ready to watch it because I couldn't record it. There was no recording back in those days, or maybe there was and we didn't have a video recorder or someone had 
got rid of the tapes that we had, whatever. Yeah. But you had to be there watching it at that time. And if you missed it, you'd have to talk to your friends at school the next day about what happened. Well, that was over. the problem is if you missed it and if you had recorded it to watch it later, your friends would be talking about it and spoilers, <laughs> right. spoilers galore. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to Magneto or someone coming up with something. The other problem is that there are so many different little niche products. So I saw one that just focused on British comedy. That sounds pretty good. Yeah. If you look at some of the old, the goodies maybe, maybe <laughs> some Monty Python on there, but any of the, the British comedy, Kenny Everett show maybe. <laughs> so that sounds like a pretty good little niche, but that's one little niche. So imagine yeah. all these different niche streaming services. Yep. Are they going to be part of Project Magneto? Oh, probably not on day one. I'd love to see an aggregation service, but I'm still not thinking it's around the corner tomorrow. So your problem, you've still got, James, I'm sorry. You're still <laughs> going to have to have all those services at the moment until sometime in the future. Oh, dear. Cyclists and scooters alike, heads up. Here's a nifty gift uh, for Christmas. So I'll start again. It's a nifty Christmas gift option. It's a helmet that doubles as a security lock. Matt, a clever idea in combining two cycling essentials into one. What do you reckon? <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I thought you were say into one helmet. <laughs> I was waiting for the helmet. Necessity is the mother of invention. And in this case, it was absolutely the mother of invention because it was a mother who was going out during lockdown on her push bike mm. to pick up some things while the kids were at home being homeschooled because she couldn't go into school and got down to the shops and went, oh, forgot my lock. Oh, what do I do now? Do I leave my bike just outside the supermarket, run in and hope it's okay, keep an eye on it, do I go back home? And while she was pondering this problem, there was someone beside her who had the same situation, had forgotten to bring a lock. Mm. And they're chatting away and they said, oh, why don't we just wrap our two helmets together, put it through the spokes and through this bar here on the ground and make it look like they're locked. And at least it'll be a bit harder for someone to get them away from each other and then we might notice and come running out and save our bike. So they did that. And she got back home and went, you know, surely other people forget their locks. Yeah. And so then she started looking at ways you might incorporate a lock into a bike or into a helmet. So did some sketches up, went through a bit of a process, and then came up with a design which is absolutely brilliant and serves a basic need. It looks like a normal helmet, conforms to all the safety standards that you would expect it to have, and then on the back section of it, just part of the back plastic section, hardly ever noticeable, there's a little tumbler so three tumblers where you put in a code just like a bike lock just like a bike lock and then at the bottom of that is a little tiny protrusion that's a 65 centimeter stainless steel cable with plastic coating that pulls out on a loop so you drag it out 65 centimeters and when you look at the information and you talk about it it says this is a lock that if you come along with a pair of bolt cutters you can get through it and if someone's serious about stealing your bike yeah That'll be fine. That's a precious bike that they're trying to get their hands on, yeah? That's right. But opportunistic theft is the more common theft. So when you duck down to the shops and you just put your bike outside for a minute while you duck in to get something, this is the lock for you. You grab your helmet, you know you've got your lock with you, you get there. And so if someone comes along and says, oh, I'm going to grab a bike, I know, it's locked up, it's got a stainless steel cable, well, I'm not going to go somewhere else and get my big bolt cutters and come back because it would have just been an opportunistic theft. Mm. So it just prevents that sort of thing. It's not designed. It doesn't pretend to be what it's not. It doesn't say this is the most secure lock in the world. It just says it's going to stop people just grabbing your bike and going. Maybe someone's walking past going, oh, 
I'm just feeling exhausted. I'm sick of walking. I've got another kilometre to get to my home. Oh, there's a bike. There's a bike. I can just jump on that and away I go. So it's that sort of theft that you're going to prevent yeah. with this. It's not, again, serious theft. But I love the idea. I love the idea that it's just, you know what? We can do it now. There are so many different ways to manufacture products. So many manufacturers out there that will do small runs, so many more, more efficient manufacturing methods. This is just a woman who had no background in designing helmets or doing design work or manufacturing, came up with this, outsourced the process to finish the design and do the, and the manufacturing. Bingo. And away you go. Killing two birds with one stone. So it's called Headlock, H-E-A-D-L-O-K-T, online sales. I reckon if it's something that you use your bike as a commuter, I'd grab one. I think it's a fantastic idea. And folks, stay tuned for more Christmas gift ideas. Way back in 1895, George Westinghouse built the first large-scale power plant at Niagara Falls on the US-Canadian border and began feeding delicious AC electricity to the hungry people of New York. In doing so, he claimed victory in the war of currents against his rival Thomas Edison. Now in 2023, work has begun on a new power line running from Canada to the Big Apple to power millions of homes with renewable energy. Matt, what are the details on this? Well, the exciting part about this, and I want to get into a little bit of detail on this one, is it's underground. So the cable that's going to feed ah. renewable power from Canada down to New York City, 546-kilometre transmission line, all underground. When they were launching it, they said, you won't see this cable anywhere except where it starts and where it ends. There's waterways, there's rivers, there's roads, a whole lot, all underground the whole way. Yeah, right. Now... This is a bit of an issue because we're developing our grid here in Australia. We're getting renewable energy generated in different places compared to where we used to have coal-fired power stations. So we are doing a bit of work, and New South Wales in particular has got a state-owned organisation called Energy Co. that's tasked with the force of building some new 500-kilovolt transmission lines and 330-kilovolt transmission lines. And I've sat in some of these meetings when there have been discussions with the with Energy Co representatives and with some farmers or some community members and they're horrified about the idea of these huge towers. We're talking maybe 70 metres tall for some mm. of these towers and obviously conductors that are running along those. What can you do below that? Well, you can't farm necessarily underneath it. There's certain conditions or restrictions. The farmers will get paid some money for these things being on their property, but mm. some farmers say, well, I'd just rather my property the way it is. Thanks very much. So we're doing that and we've done overhead power lines pretty much in this country for any reasonable length. A couple of years ago down in Victoria, there was a group down there who were very unhappy about overhead power lines. So they did some research about underground power lines and they found that it wasn't as expensive as they said, mm. but it was still a bit expensive. Mm. But this project now, I just see this as opening up some opportunities. So how far is it going? 546 kilometres. Yeah, so it's right. a fair length. Yeah, that's a good distance. That is. Now they're doing this for $6 billion. That's $6 billion US dollars. So it's not cheap, but even when you do overhead power lines, it's not mm. cheap to do that's them. Right. And again... It's similar in terms of the spec. So they're, they're delivering 1.25 gigawatts of power down in New York, and they're doing it with a 400 kilovolt line. Now, of course, when you start to go underground, you get a few restrictions compared to overhead. So overhead power lines, for a start, you don't need any sheath over them. They're not mm. protected. They're just right. using air as an insulator. If you look up at power lines, you see that they're far enough apart 
that they're not arcing. And if you get some large wind sometimes and things start blowing around, you might see a spark between them because each of those conductors has got nothing over it. So the mm. cable is fairly cheap. Well, I'm sure it's still expensive, but relatively cheap compared to putting sheathing over it. And then you've got the ability for the heat that's generated to get away. So you've got mm. open air, you've got wind flowing over it. So you've got those two huge advantages. And you do get a little bit of heat loss. Obviously, we go very high voltage. So very low current, which means very low heat loss or a minimal heat loss. That's right. And it's uh, to the square, sorry, it's to the inverse of the square. So as you increase your voltage, mm. the amount of power loss you get, which would be realised as heat, is to the inverse of the square. So when you double your voltage, you quadruple your or, or you negatively quadruple the heat loss, if that makes sense. So, because it's over the square yeah, of the voltage. Yeah, I, I squared R, and so, yeah, we can do the maths on that a little bit later. Yeah, that's right. P equals I squared R, V equals IR, P equals IV. You put all those together, and you get inverse square, I think. Yes. So, it's from roughly. So, essentially, you want these very high voltage. That's great. When you put them underground, then you don't get the ability for the heat to be dissipated as easily because it's underground for a start. So you end up putting bigger conductors underground, so you generate less heat in that. Mm -hmm. And then you also have that bit of a problem that you can't just whack in some open cables underground. You've got to actually put some sort of insulation over them, so the cable is a bit more expensive. Having said all that, though, obviously they've been able to do it in the US. And again, $6 billion is not the most ridiculous price tag I know it sounds expensive, but for a 546-kilometre transmission line, mm. it doesn't seem like the most ridiculous price well, tag for that. It's going to power literally millions of homes. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And be a, a big income earner for um, Canada as well, I'd expect. This is the great thing, and this is where Australia is in a great spot. We can generate a lot of renewable power, and if we can get that to other countries, and we've mm. got some countries to the north of us that are fairly close, undersea power cables, which we know we've talked about before. So there's some potential there, some opportunities. But what I'm most excited about is the whole fact that this is going underground. And I just wonder, some of those farmers out there, now I don't know the limitations, I would assume you're burying it fairly deep, maybe mm. a metre or more deep. So you're burying it deep enough that when you're out there with your plough and you're, you're putting some <laughs> crop in, you're not affecting these power lines underneath. Maybe there still are some conditions over not being able to do things over the top of them. You wouldn't be able to build something over the top, obviously, but maybe if you're a farmer, you couldn't still do things over the top. So maybe it's not as good as I think, but it does sound quite interesting. And we see it around streets where you see more power cables put underground around streets rather yeah. than having all the power cables hanging above streets. It looks tidier, looks nicer. Again, you're doing much lower voltage, much shorter runs there, so it's a bit different to high voltage. These are all DC, of course, as well. We've talked about that before, that some of these yeah. long runs now are all going DC. Very interesting about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so a whole range of things. But I, again, I'm excited by the fact that it's underground. I'll be interested to see how it goes, what issues they have there. But I think absolutely there are some implications for Australia in this as we start to roll out our renewable energy grid here. Hmm. Well, if you ever wanted to order a new DVD from Netflix, your time has now officially run out. They have shut down their DVD service. So if that's you and you still wanted to have a copy of Elf delivered in time for Christmas, to you I'd say, what the hell are you still watching DVDs for anyway? Matt, I guess it was a good run while it was on, but anyone who has been put out by this needs to get with the time, surely. Streaming, James. You've just talked <laughs> up streaming. Surely that's the way to go. I can't Get believe some subscriptions, <laughs> a thousand right. of them. I can't believe that until the end of September, which is when they shut down the service, 
50,000 discs were still sent out every single week. 50,000 people who really needed it. Well, that's more than 50,000. I'm assuming not everyone was getting one per week. Probably not. No, that's right. Holy so, moly. Yeah, so it, it amazed me that there were that many. It's I, a lot of copies of Elf. <laughs> maybe. The, you think they knew about this for a while. Surely they would have started scaling back and going into other services. But I saw some interviews with some of the clients that were still using them. They were horrified. They were shattered <laughs> and as a way to appease some Are of these, these guys people. these guys doomsday preppers and stuff? Maybe, yeah, predicting maybe. the world shutting down, they're going to need to watch some telly while they're in and their bunker? Netflix actually said to them that the last DVD that we ship, you can keep. This is our little oh. token of gratitude, <laughs> and it probably solves the problem for Netflix because what else were they going to do with yeah, it? That's right. <laughs> warehouses full of DVDs. You think so? That's right. So at the peak, in just one plant, the last plant that was left, at its peak, this one particular plant was processing 1.2 million DVDs a week. Wow. So 50,000 they could do stand on the head. Obviously, a few more employees when they had 1.2 million wow. going out. The first DVD sent out, of course back in 1998, was Beetlejuice. That was the very first DVD that was sent out. <laughs> For the nostalgic among you. That's right. And one at one stage, Netflix were the fifth largest customer for the US Postal Service. Wow. I wonder who was bigger. Amazon maybe? Mm. Yeah, but anyway, so Netflix obviously have changed their business model and that's great. You've got to keep changing your business model. But I just did find it amazing that people were still renting DVDs and yeah. Again, the people I, I saw were just talking about they didn't like streaming. They didn't say there were too many streaming services. That wasn't one of the <laughs> options for them. But, yeah, I don't know what else they're going to do. Can you still go and buy DVDs? I haven't seen any for sale anywhere. Oh, you must be able to. I haven't been in that section of Big W for a long time. But, yeah, you probably – I mean, they've got all those box sets that they – Yeah, maybe that if you if you want to go and keep watching the same one over and over in some <laughs> box set, maybe. But it's, it's fascinating. But this is a, a chapter. This definitely is a chapter closing – that Netflix now, which started up as a DVD delivery service, has now stopped the thing that it started up to do. But that's a sign of a great company that you are changing mm. what you are doing and changing your business model as the external environment changes. I can tell you um, something about that, though. Um, I know where the dusty boxes full of DVDs are out in the garage, <laughs> in the back shed. So anyone that <laughs> wants a DVD of a movie from 40 years ago, just contact James. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> going to take too long. In fact, I'm surprised that it's taken ChatGBT this long to move on from text only into voice and images. ChatGPT's world conquest has made another advance. Matt, explain how our digital overlord will make life even better for us. I did think of exactly the same thing, world domination. This seems to me like (laughs) it wasn't content with people typing in information and getting answers back. It now wants to talk. And this is really to take on Siri... Well, Siri and Alexa, this is all about head-on competition to those two because Siri and Alexa don't have as much information, don't have the comprehensive information that ChatGPT has, but it's convenient. Mm. So some people will just use those products because you can talk to them. ChatGPT and being able to talk to ChatGPT, now it's getting interesting, very interesting. And when you think about the process here, now at the start, it's only for plus subscribers, so people that are paying for the service, and it'll only be on apps, not on your computer to begin with. But this is step one, James. The steps yeah. are happening very quickly. And the, a little word of warning with ChatGPT, I was actually doing some work on some detailed calculations and just working on some things and using ChatGPT to give me some formulas. And I thought, oh, I'll actually just get it to do the calculation for me and see how it goes. And so I said, well, I've got this much of this and went through a few 
items that I had to calculate, and it gave me the answer back, and it said approximately. And I looked at the numbers, and I went, it just looks a bit out. And I actually just jumped on a spreadsheet and typed the numbers in properly, and it was out by a little bit. And I'm thinking... Ah. It's just a mathematical calculation. So it wasn't estimating the constants that it was using, for example. So it's a bit lazy with its maths. It was. And I don't understand this part, but this is where you just got to take a little bit of caution with everything that ChatGPT gives you. It, I've had this experience maybe once or twice with ChatGPT. I've asked a question for some background information. And it's given me it, and I went, that doesn't seem right. A bit like you say with your science students, does it does it make <laughs> well, sense? Well, chemistry, yeah. Look, yeah, you've got to you've got to really think. Does that number um, seem like it's real? Yeah, but this was not even a number. This was just based. I was looking for some historical information, mm. and what it gave me, I just thought, well, I was thinking that the thing I was after happened sometime around the late eighteen hundreds, and it was telling me it happened in about nineteen forty, and I went. That doesn't sound right. So mm. I asked a question. I said, are you sure? What about this that happened back in 1880? And it no, apologised. Really. <laughs> but it, no, but it did. It said, oh, I'm sorry, you are correct. And I'm thinking, surely you've oh, got better access wow. to information than, than my human memory. Well, kids, get a load of that for your assignments. <laughs> yeah, right. it'll make mistakes for you. So when you start saying fact check chat GPT, that sounds like maybe it's not as effective as we'd like it to be. But off the We do know that it's searching the entire internet, even the wrong stuff. Well, that's right. It's collated that information already. So, yes, it probably has access to all the incorrect information as well. But this one here, I think, is just one of those things where it is moving on to world domination. You will be able to chat to it. You'll be able to say, can you give me this information? You'll get a verbal answer back. You'll be able to have pretty much a conversation with it, James, knowing that it's, you know that friend you've got that's always right? Well, this is your friend that's always right, kind of. Kind of. It'll get there eventually. Approximately but, right. But this is the friend that knows all the information. That know-it-all friend, this is the way you'll be able to have that conversation with that know-it-all friend uh, by having yeah. a chat with ChatGPT. Blue light glasses. Have you heard of them? They're supposed to reduce the eye strain that comes from excessive screen time. There is, uh, <clears throat> pardon me, there are a heap of different models and designs. Some require a prescription, but some can be bought straight over the counter. They seem to be getting more and more popular, though. I guess the question is, do they really work, Matt? Have you ever tried something like I've this? I've never tried blue light glasses. I know you can turn off the blue light on your phone if it's late at night. And, and you've never tried that one either? I have. All oh, right. Yeah, the yeah, yeah. It just, it just looks like it, it goes at like a little bit more sepia tone. Yeah, 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 that's right. And people are somewhat convinced of it. And, of course, the logic is sound. Blue light, 450 to 495 nanometers. We get that out of the sun. Mm. And so if you go back to caveman times, then you're out in the sun and you're alert and awake and looking out for that killer tiger that's going to jump over the next ridge and attack you. And then the sun goes down, so your body says it's time to go and crawl into my cave and protect myself and go to sleep, and the cycle continues. I wonder if there's more blue light as well in the morning. Uh, and through midday, mm. and less as the sun's setting. Yeah, I don't know that one. That's mm. a possibility. Anyway. When we then discovered lighting, and when we started having artificial light, well, there's blue light in that. Of course, mm. blue light in our computer screens, our mobile phones. And so the logic is, if you're sitting there at night time watching your smartphone, watching your screen on your computer, then your body is thinking, hey, it's time to be awake. Yeah. And then you try and go to sleep, and of course you can't. Is that just because your mind's being stimulated by the stuff that you're reading, watching cats on YouTube, for example, that's very stimulating <laughs> for the mind? Is it because of that or is it because of the blue light? Some researchers have done the hard yards for us, James, and the results at this stage say 
blue light glasses, blue light filters on your phone, do nothing. Really? The, the, all the evidence so far, and they looked at a whole range of different trials. So they didn't actually conduct trials themselves, but some researchers looked for every bit of peer-reviewed literature, everything that was done on blue light lenses, every bit of research they could find, and all of it was inconclusive. The market is going to go crazy on that. Now, if you find that you go to bed at night and you put it into blue screen mode or no blue screen mode, and then you go to sleep afterwards, fine, knock yourself out. If someone says, here's $500 for a set of blue light lenses that are going to solve all your problems, maybe just think about that one a little bit mm. because it's probably not doing any harm, but the researchers basically found that it doesn't seem to do anything effective in terms of what it's meant to be doing anyway. There you go, <laughs> folks. Yeah, blue light glasses, they're not what they cracked up to be. A while back, we ran a story about one particular problem with EVs, being that they tend to go through a set of tyres faster than your average sedan. Now, Matt's here with a follow-up story. Matt, why do EVs shed more rubber anyway? Well, a few reasons, and I did actually have the very first Tesla I had. I remember I got to about 35,000 Ks on it, and I was looking at my tyres one day, and I went, they're pretty well done. I better get those replaced. And I went down to my local tyre place, and I knew the guy there very well, and walked in and said, g'day, John, how are you going? I need a set of tyres for my Tesla. He said, all right, no worries, Matt. What do you got on it? And I said, 35,000. No, no, he said. Michelin tyres, at least 45,000 in those. No way, no, they're, they're known for good wear. And I said, John, have a look at me. He looked at me and said, oh. He said, they do look pretty worn. He said, what have you been doing? I said, jump in, John. We'll go for a drive around the block. <laughs> and we got back and he went, I understand it now. I absolutely understand why yeah. you've gone through a set of tyres. So a couple of problems. The first thing is they're heavier. EVs are heavier than the equivalent petrol car. You've got the batteries on there, which makes them heavier. On average, a normal sedan, a normal light vehicle, if you like, 454 kilograms heavier with an EV over the equivalent petrol car. So that's obviously going to put a bit more weight in the tyres. That's obviously going to give you a little bit more wear. Then you've got the incredible acceleration in mm. an EV, and you just can't help yourself sometimes. <laughs> we talked about it last week. That's when you right. get that guy pull up beside you at the lights. <laughs> Not that we're encouraging dragging at the lights, <laughs> but sometimes accidentally your right foot becomes a little bit lazy and just collapses onto the accelerator, and that puts a little bit more wear and tear on the tyres. And then the third thing is they handle really well yeah. because you've got that low center like of gravity on rails exactly right so when that's happening there's a little bit more sideways pressure put on the tires so you think well that's all fine so what the tires wear out a little bit quicker well six million tons of tire pollution is created annually by the vehicles on our roads now this that's is just a lot that is a lot now this is just driving cars with a little bit of little tiny minuscule bit of rubber coming off every time we drive that car adds up on average to each for each car at about 4.08 kilograms of tyre per year you lose. Because it's got to go somewhere. Mm. You look at your tyre and you've got deep tread and you look at it again a year later, you go, it's, it's not deep tread. tread anymore. So where did that go? It had to go somewhere and it ends up out in the atmosphere in general. Most tyres contain a substance called 6-PPD and that prevents the rubber from cracking essentially. And that's actually quite bad. PPD gets into waterways, gets into plants. Mm. They've tested urine from humans for PPD and they found it in humans. So it's something that doesn't break down easily and that's part of that whole tyre wear. So the, the point of all of this says that 
At the moment, we've got 14 million electric cars on the roads across the world. So that's great. That's growing. But as much as we talk about low tailpipe emissions, then the emissions from tyres are going to go up. We see Goodness some, me. yeah, we see some manufacturers working on ways to reduce tyre wear with heavier vehicles. But maybe they've got to work on some sort of replacement for six PPD as well. Yeah, <clears throat> pardon me, a whole new compound. Maybe that's this is part of the challenge, and every part of a car can be challenged, can be looked at differently. Once we've got electric vehicles, some ways are a very positive way in terms of you don't have a big engine at the front, a big petrol tank at the back, you've got more flexibility. In other areas, more tyre wear, so do we need to redesign tyres to suit the type of vehicles we've got. Yeah. Don't go and stress about it too much today. You're still doing good for the environment by driving an EV, but it's just something to be aware of. Now, we were talking about subscriptions earlier. How many listeners have a YouTube subscription? I know they keep offering me one, and while I'm almost tempted to go ad-free, I think I can hold off on paying for yet another service. Well, in the EU, YouTube had been running a YouTube light offer, just removing the ads but not allowing any of the other cool features. Matt, was it worth it? Because as I understand, that they're pulling the pin in favour of the all-or-nothing approach now. I have the challenging question that I often ask myself and anyone that happens to be around me listening to my inner thoughts. Do people want to get rid of ads enough that they'll pay for them? Now, pay TV came along, of mm. course, and the promise was that pay for pay TV, get all these extra services, and because we don't need ads to pay for the content because you're paying for it, no ads. And I went, wow, that's fantastic. But of course, they've still got ads on pay TV now. Well, how did that yeah. go wrong? <laughs> And then there are some who believe, for example, YouTube, you jump on YouTube, you just want to look at that video, and there's the five-second get rid of it after five-second ad. I can mm. kind of live with that. The frustrating yeah. ones are the 15-second. Yeah. You've got to watch till the end. 15 seconds. Who's got 15 <laughs> seconds to spare? It sounds terrible. But YouTube have got their YouTube premium, so it's got a whole bunch of extra features and the removal of ads. And exactly as you said, they've got YouTube premium light, and they basically said for €6.99 per month, you can have YouTube exactly the same as you've normally been used to using YouTube, but no ads. Mm. And I've got my answer for a small amount of money, €6.99. Are you prepared to pay that to get rid of all the ads? The answer is no. Obviously, not enough people are subscribing, and YouTube has said, that's it, we're pulling the pin on our premium YouTube light plan. But I wonder what's, what it's costing them to actually offer that. You wouldn't have thought much, would you? So no. why not so, well, leave it? Yeah, just leave it, and whoever wants it can have it. Yeah, it's, it's an odd thing, isn't it? Someone's not done the, people are subscribing, so I'm going to pull it, even though it's really not costing me anything. That's right. Someone's done the calculations. The only thing I could think of is the dearer premium, maybe they figure that people love the premium YouTube, or sorry, the YouTube premium light. Maybe they loved it so much to get rid of ads. Maybe they'll pay for the they'll dearer force service. force those people up another notch in the pay scale. Now, I have no idea. That's just me speculating <laughs> <laughs> randomly. Yeah. I have no idea if that's the actual reason, but I agree with you. It just seems mean. <laughs> it does. YouTube, yeah, being mean. <laughs> but it does seem crazy because surely it doesn't cost them much to offer. Once you create the infrastructure, the back-end infrastructure, mm. and you're taking money off people automatically, surely... That's it. Just leave now, it there. Another reason, another thing here. Um, why are they only offering in the um, in Europe and not in Australia? You are asking questions that I do not have answers <laughs> to. Because <laughs> they're mean. And and get ready for this. It's not just 
in Europe it's being offered, it's in select countries. So ah. Belgium, Denmark, Finland, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, Norway and Sweden. So it's not everywhere in Europe. Yeah, you go to Germany, so you can't have that option. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. All oh, right. <laughs> yeah, so I don't know the answer to some of these questions. Sometimes I just like to pose the questions, James, <laughs> when I don't know the answers. <laughs> Now, how do you feel about the new wave of EVs coming from non-traditional car manufacturers? I know that it's a a bridge too far for some, and one more reason to hold off on an EV purchase for them. Well, in China, mobile phone manufacturer Huawei is about to team up with Cherry Auto and produce a new line of EVs, and they've got Tesla firmly in their sights, Matt. I loved that you got the pronunciation of Huawei right. I saw a very funny video of Huawei walking the streets of America asking people, how do you pronounce this word, showing them the spelling? Because H-U-A-W-E-I doesn't say Huawei to me. (laughs) That's it, exactly right. But anyway, you've done it right, Huawei. And this actually is the new vehicle manufacturing process, I believe. They're now a software device mm. with some wheels on it. Yeah. And that's where it's happening. I think the traditional manufacturers, we've talked before about Toyota really struggling. Ford are getting the hang of it now with their F-150 Lightning in America. V-Dub have said we've really got to focus on EVs. While these traditional manufacturers have got their old world ways of doing things and their traditional ways and then trying to adapt it to EVs, you've got all these new players on the market and there's a lot of them out there. And this is another one, and I love the concept here. So Huawei have been known for making, well, they're probably known for being banned in America, but they've Mm. been known for making telecommunications products, making software devices or software and then devices that use that software. So for them, they don't really want to muck around with wheels, but they've got all the knowledge about creating great software. Software, And when you jump in an EV, you just feel like it is a big software device. It's got so many different software facets to it and so much flexibility. So Huawei said, we'll do all that. Cherry, you know how to put wheels on a big metal box, so why don't you go and do that part of it? We'll team up. And they've come up with the Luxseed S7. Now, they are aiming this firmly at the Tesla Model S, and they still believe the Model S is the premium Tesla in the world little bit unhappy that Tesla stopped bringing the Model S into Australia, but that's another issue altogether. Mm. But that is the premium EV in the world, so why not go straight for it? Now, I don't know how they're going to go for worldwide sales because there still are a number of countries who have banned Huawei telecommunication devices because they're worried about it being involved with Chinese spying. I have no proof Mm. to say that that is the case, but that's Mm. what some countries are worried about. If you bring a car in that's built by Huawei, are you still worried about spying by China? It all depends on how fast the car goes. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> so will it go around the world? Don't know. It will go in China, and China is a big market. China at the moment is going very well for EV sales percentage-wise, mm. and there's a lot of people there. So yeah. why not go and attack the Chinese market? BYD is killing it in China at the moment. Tesla's going very well in China as well. But now this new Luxseed S7 which is coming out in November, available for sale. And even that, you see, here we are talking about it for the first time, and in November, it'll be ready for sale. When we talk about some cars coming out from some more traditional manufacturers, we're saying, here's the concept car, and in 2026, (laughs) then it'll be available, because that's what happens in the old world of car manufacturing. You talk about it, you take it to a show, you get people excited about it, you finally make an announcement about when it'll be released. 
That's all out the window now because software development happens much quicker. And so even though there's a manufacturing process there, they're going to deliver these much quicker. I can't tell you any specs for this particular vehicle at the moment. They're not releasing those. So here they are, the car's out in November. They don't even know what it does yet. But Huawei, Everything's different about the way we do business. It is. Days. That's right. Huawei actually do make an automotive solution. So they've actually got something that they'll be using in this product, but other car manufacturers or someone that just wants to manufacture cars can come along and say to Huawei, we want to buy your automotive package and they'll put that into a car as well. Mm. So it's, again, a completely different way of outsourcing. Wow. <laughs> Quite fascinating <laughs> anyway. And that's all we have for you today, folks. The groundsman has arrived. He's got the corner post in the back of the ute and he's staring at us urgently for a chance to start taking down the nets. That's the hint for us to make ourselves scarce. Thanks for another cracking tech talk, Matt. Do you reckon he could help me with a few of those DVDs, yours and mine yeah, and mine, <laughs> after, you finished, after you finish DVDs? <laughs> I am still reluctant to throw them out, by the way, because um, you know you just never know when you know we get the old DVD out and yeah, kids, this is what we used to do, or grandkids, remember what we used to do back in the olden days? So don't throw them out. Definitely don't throw them out, but stick them on eBay. Surely you can you can pay for some of your subscription <laughs> services. Those people who are still uh, lamenting the fact that Netflix aren't delivering anymore. <laughs> That's right. Well, look, I'm um, liking the idea of cutting back on my TV subscriptions, that's for sure. And I'm not liking the probability for a new set of tyres for the Tesla. Swings and roundabouts, folks. Swings and roundabouts. Thanks for tuning in again this week. I'm James Eddy, and it's been a pleasure to bring you Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson once, once again. We'll be back with another episode next week, and we look forward to the company of you and maybe a couple of your best friends again as we bring you all the latest news from the world of science and technology. We'll see you then. 